0: Father in heaven, we thank you for the opportunity this day gives us. I pray today, Lord, as we go on a a course we don't normally go, that you will you will give us eyes. That we will not so much see what is not right in someone else, but maybe see what is not right in us, and then be able to view each other uh, from another place. Help us, Lord. Uh, Today, that we will learn to be neighbors to each other even better. In Jesus' name, amen. So I mentioned I've been gone the last two Sabbaths. And uh, so if you go back about two and a half weeks, we spent that week uh, in Virginia with my sister and brother-in-law at their place there in Virginia. And we had a lovely time there, we are enjoying it. It was around the 4th of July. I think it was actually on the 3rd when this happened. And so my brother-in-law's father is a man by the name of Dick Coston. Now, if you have a long history in this church or you served as a pastor somewhere else, you may well know him because he was a pastor for years. Uh, and uh, he, he got to telling stories. Alicia, He told a story that Alicia heard and she worked out for him to be able to tell this story to the whole group. And I'm so glad that she did that because it got me thinking and it led to what I wanted to talk about today. So we're going to talk about that in a second. But first, I want to tell you the story he told. He was saying, I remember 50 years ago when I was a pastor in the Florida Conference. So you do the math. That puts us back around 1969. He said, I was a pastor in the Florida Conference and I was serving in a church in the southern part of the state. And down in the southern part of the state in those days, there was a lot of sugar cane that was grown and harvested in that area. There probably still is today, I don't know, but there was a lot going on there. And in those days, they had trouble sometimes getting enough people to actually come and harvest the cane. So frequently, people would be brought in from islands of the Caribbean to work in these sugar cane fields in the southern part of Florida. Well, it just so happens that there was a group that came from, I don't know if it was Jamaica or if they came from Haiti or where they came from, but they they came and were working sugar cane plantation in Southern Florida. And it was in the context of all of this that one day, uh, Elder Costin was at the church and one uh, of the members came up to him and said, uh, Elder Costin, I did you a favor. Okay, well, let me just say off the top, if you've ever been a pastor, whenever somebody comes up to you and says, I did you a favor, big time red flag, you're like, hmm, did I want that favor? I did you a favor. said, I was downtown, and, and I ran into some guys who were working on one of the plantations who apparently are Adventists, and they asked about the church, But I did you a favor. I told them they can't come. Fifty years ago in our conference. So the rest of the story is Elder Cossin got up early Sabbath morning and drove down to where these guys were. There were 14 of them. And he said, I'm sorry for what you were told. You are welcome at our church. And he made sure that they got there and he made sure they had rides every Sabbath after that. But the first Sabbath when it happened, when they came and this gentleman who had done the favor came in the back of the church and saw them sitting there, well, let's just say he didn't take it lying down. He felt fully justified to speak loudly about it as he came down the aisle and to sit behind them To be very unpleasant, until finally partway through the service, he got up and insisted his wife lead with him, and then never came back for as long as Elder Costin was pastor of that church. I told this story to Marvin Lohman, one of our members here, who's also a retired pastor. He says, I remember, Dick, I served in this conference with him, and that's exactly how it was. So I told the story to Pastor Barb, and she said, yeah, you don't even have to go back 50 years. She said, I remember I was shocked when I first came to this conference 39 years ago. She was serving in Jacksonville. She said, I was from the Northeast. You know, I'm not going to say we got along well, but we were a little more used to being around each other. And she said, I came down to this church in Jacksonville 39 years ago, and Uh, an African-American couple showed up at the door, and the deacon who was at the door said to them, oh, I'm sorry, you can't come here. Your church is on the other side of town. So we hear these stories, and immediately, if you're like me, immediately our minds think, how can the church have such evil people in it? And okay, maybe in the story uh, that that uh, Elder coston was telling in the encounter he had. Maybe, by the way, that man behaved after that, we could say there were some really serious, deep issues in this man's life. And maybe we could write him off as evil. But here's the problem. I followed up with Barb on her story, and I said, tell me, tell me about the deacon who said that. Was he a real jerk? She said, no, actually, he was a very kind man. He was very loving and was a very good deacon. See, isn't that the problem? Isn't that the heart of the problem there? Because because what it means is that there was a time when very God-loving and God-fearing people actually believed it would be morally wrong for us to mix the races. I uh, I got a text after first service. One of our good friends from from Marietta, Joe D. Bowen, texted me and she said, "I, I remember what you're talking about. When I was little, those were the rules. And it wasn't just the evil people who thought those who were the rules. Everybody thought those were the rules. Which got me thinking about this whole subject. And so as he was talking about this, I thought, you know, we need to visit this subject again. And, and what it got me thinking was how much of who we are is truly based on conscious choices where we're, we're honestly considering good and evil And how much is actually just the product of our context and the conventional wisdom of our day? Here's the thing. We always assume that we are following the most enlightened truth possible, right? Because if I'm seeking to follow truth and it seems to me that there is a truth a bit more enlightened than the one I have, what am I going to do? I'm going to slide into the more enlightened truth, right? So at any given point in time, we assume that we are following what is true. The problem is, so did they. But how much of this truth that we follow really is empirically true, or how much of it is actually what what my mama told me versus what your mama told you? And now we got a little picture up here a lovely picture you know we we love our moms and they pour into our lives but here's the deal we can't even agree on how to spell mama (laughs) much less on what your mama said and what my mama said which all brings me to kind of an unusual story from the Old Testament that I don't know if you remember or not. It's found in the book of Jeremiah, which is kind of unusual because Jeremiah is usually just prophetic words, not stories. But there's a story there. And I want to read you this story found in Jeremiah chapter 35, verse 1. The word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord in the days of Jehoiakim the son of Josiah, king of Judah, saying, Go to the house of the Rechabites, Speak to them and bring them into the house of the Lord, into one of the chambers, and give them wine to drink. Then I took Jezaniah, the son of Jeremiah, the son of Habazaniah, his brothers, and all his sons, and the whole house of the Rechabites. It was a big group. And I brought them into the house of the Lord, into the chamber of the sons of Hanan, the son of Igdaliah, the man of God, which was by the chamber of the princes above the chamber of Massaniah, the son of Shalom, the keeper of the door. You, you know what I'm talking about, right? It's always funny when you read these descriptions in the Bible that were put there back when people knew what that actually meant. But so anyway, that's where it was. Verse five, Then I set before the sons of the house of the Rechabites bowls full of wine and cups, and I said to them, Drink wine. This is probably the reason you've never heard this story. It just doesn't really work in an Adventist context, does it? The uh, prophet of the Lord bringing people into the house of the Lord and commanding them to drink wine. We just, what do we do with that? All right. Verse 6, but they said, we will drink no wine for Jonadab, the son of Rahab, our father commanded us saying, you shall drink no wine, you nor your sons forever. And at this point, it would be a great place for us to spring off and do a great sermon on temperance. Unfortunately, this chapter has absolutely nothing to do with that. So being bound to the text, let's find out what it actually does have something to do with. Verse 6, But they said, We will drink no wine, for Jonadab the son of Rechab our father commanded us, saying, You shall drink no wine, you nor your sons, forever. You shall not build a house." sow seed plant a vineyard nor have any of these but all your days you shall dwell in tents that you may live many days in the land where you are sojourners at this point you begin to wonder did he curse them verse 8 thus we have obeyed the voice of jonadab the son of Rechab, our father In all that he charged us, to drink no wine all our days, we, our wives, our sons, or our daughters, nor to build ourselves houses to dwell in, nor do we have vineyards, fields, or seed, but we have dwelt in tents, and have obeyed and done according to all that Jonadab our father commanded us. But it came to pass, when Nebuchadnezzar king of Babylon came into the land, that we said, Come, let us go to Jerusalem, for fear of the army of the Chaldeans, and for fear of the army of the Syrians, so we dwell at Jerusalem. So for all the generations after Jonadab, this family lived as nomads. Now here's what's crazy about this. That wasn't what God designed for the children of Israel to do. Every family was allotted territory within the area of the land of Canaan. And they were to come into the land, and they were to live in their territory, and they were to plant vineyards, and they were to to sow seed, and they were to build houses. But Jonadab came along and said, we're not going to do it that way. And the culture of that family was so strong that they lived as nomads. Now, they didn't drink wine, but I'm pretty sure they weren't vegan, right? Because if you're living as a nomad and you're not sowing seed or anything like that, yeah, so pretty sure on that. But the culture was so strong that they honored the words of their father. That really brings us to the point that God is trying to make here in this story. So verse 12, Then came the word of the Lord to Jeremiah, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Go tell the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, Will you not receive instruction to obey my words, says the Lord? The words of Jonadab, the son of Rechab, which he commanded his sons not to drink wine, are performed, for to this day they drink none and obey their father's commandment. But although I have spoken to you, rising early and speaking, you did not obey me. So one way to look at this story, God is using the Rechabites as an illustration of here's this group of people who continue to do exactly what they're possibly crazy father told them down through these generations, yet Israel does not honor the word that God speaks. That's the point of this whole thing. The Rechabites are an illustration. Why is there this family that honors the strange tradition given by their father, and the rest of you won't do what I say? Now, God speaks a blessing, Verse 18, And Jeremiah said to the house of the Rechabites, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Because you have obeyed the commandment of Jonadab your father, and kept all his precepts, and done according to all that he commanded you, therefore thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Jonadab the son of Rechab shall not lack a man to stand before me forever. So they're blessed. God gives them a blessing because of their faithfulness to their father's word. But here's the problem. We want to honor this idea of faithfulness to the Father's Word. But what if what the fathers are saying is wrong? Sometimes what your daddy and your mama tell you is absolutely true. Sometimes what your daddy and your mama tell you is absolutely crazy. Sometimes the Lord commends us for following the footsteps of our parents. Sometimes the Lord condemns us for following the footsteps of our parents. We pick up stuff from our parents. We we can't help it, right? I mean, your life is formed there. There's a story, again, Alicia told me once that she had heard about this family that the, the daughters, and it was all the way down to the granddaughters now, they made this certain family dish. And before they put it in the oven, they would cut off the ends. They'd form this whole thing and then cut off the ends and put it in the oven. And one day, one of the granddaughters said, why do we cut the ends off? And so they began speculating. You know, one daughter said, well, it makes it more crispy. And another one said, well, it's more fresh. And everybody had an explanation for why they did this until somebody finally went back to the grandmother. And she said, you guys still cut the ends off? She said, I only did that because my oven was too narrow. (laughs) But that's the way they'd always had it. And so they assumed that there was a good reason. Some of the things that you picked up from your mama and daddy, not my mama and daddy, of course, but yours. Some of the things you picked up from your mom and daddy are just plain crazy. But here's the thing. They probably had a good reason for it. As I was thinking about this, I was reminded of the movie Finding Nemo. And if you've raised children in the last 20 years, you've seen this about a billion times. So... So I know this movie pretty well. It's the story of a, of a clownfish and his son, and his son gets captured and put in an aquarium. Anyway, the whole thing is trying to find him and bring him back home. But there's a scene that happens very early on in the movie. So, so Nemo is the son and Marlon is the father, clownfish, and it's the first day of school And Nemo's all excited he's going to go out, and he's ready to go out into the world. But just before it happens, they have this little encounter. It goes like this. Marlon says, now what's the one thing we have to remember about the ocean? And Nemo says, it's not safe. And Marlon says, that's my boy. Why does he say this? Well, if you watch the first part of the movie, you know exactly why he says this. You see, originally Marlon had this positive outlook on life, and he had a wife named Coral. And they had a beautiful spot on an anemone right by the drop-off. And they had this clutch of eggs that was days from hatching. And just days before they hatched, a barracuda showed up. And the barracuda ate coral, and all of the eggs except Nemo. So why in the world would a father pour such neurosis into his child? Because the ocean is dangerous and it hurt him and There was no way he couldn't You See how that works in our lives There's another movie. I thought of another one I won't give you the title of this one for fear of being accused of promoting it, but you might recognize it when I say it It was actually a musical kind of thing and there's this moment in it where where they're, they're gathered on the platform and it's the end of World War two and it's in England and uh, all of these fathers are returning from the war and they're, they're gathered on the platform with their wives and with their children and they're together and, and they're hugging each other and they spontaneous together turn and, and break out into this triumphant hymn of thankfulness for deliverance. But then your attention is brought to this child off to the side who's all by himself. And the reason he's all by himself is because his daddy didn't come home from the war. And shortly after this, there's another song that that builds on the relationship that then developed after this between him and his mother. And the words go like this, Hush now, baby, baby, don't you cry. Mama's going to make all of your nightmares come true. Mama's going to put all of her fears into you. Mama's going to keep you right here under her wing. She won't let you fly, but she might let you sing. Mama's going to keep baby cozy and warm. Of course, Mama's going to help build the wall. Now, why would any mother want to do that? Well, no mother wants to do that. But when you've lost your husband in the war, and all you have left is this child, that's what comes out of you. Now, why am I telling you this? I'm telling you this because we get shaped in the context of these homes we grow up in. And sometimes we grow up in a home where we know all too well that the ocean is dangerous. So what's the point of this message, and why am I talking about it today? Well, I told you it goes back to to the story I heard Elder Costin telling. And as he was telling that, I thought in my mind, I want to revisit the subject of us as a diverse church. We've talked about this different times in different ways, but typically when we've talked about it, it's been at some point of severe tension within the culture. Something's happened somewhere, and we've done it different times. uh, Pastor Bernie spoke with me several times. We've done it a lot of different ways, but as I thought about it, I thought, you know, this is a time when, when things aren't necessarily all that tense. This was two weeks ago. I was thinking about this. Things are not necessarily all that tense in the larger culture. Maybe this is a good time to revisit this subject from kind of a a bigger view rather than coming to it out of some sort of current event. Okay, nice try, right? Because if you paid any attention to the news over the last week, this is anything but a time where there's not stress. But I was already committed down this road, so I assumed, well, we'll just have to believe that this was the Lord's will one way or another. But understand that my purpose in this is not to attempt to specifically address any issue right now. I want to come to this in the context of the reality of us being a diverse community and the reality that there's an election, maybe you've heard of it, about a year and a little more from now, and I have no idea how we're going to survive till then based on how we're doing so far. There are likely many definitions to the word diversity, but I want to give what I think is primarily a functional definition. Diversity means we don't agree on stuff. Is that simple enough? Diversity means we don't agree on stuff. Don't fall into the trap of thinking diversity means multi-ethnic uniformity. Just because we gathered a person from every race and all agree on the same thing, it's not diversity anymore. That's multi ethnic uniformity. Diversity means a group of people who don't agree about stuff. This is why diversity is so difficult. So, you want to know what I'm talking about? I'm going to give you some examples right now that I guarantee you because, see, I'm on social media and I see your posts. Some things that I know for sure we don't agree on. Not me and you, us with each other. Immigration, we don't agree on that. Racial bias and inequality, we don't agree on that. Tax policy and the role of government. Health care, homelessness, who should control Congress, who should be president. So here's the question. Can you love someone who disagrees with you on this stuff? Because the problem is, where does the argument go? The argument always goes to anyone who does not agree with me on this stuff is evil. Right? Doesn't matter which side you're arguing from. So here's the thing, if you cannot love someone who disagrees with you, maybe you don't love diversity as much as you say you do. Because diversity means living with people who don't agree with you. Can we resist the impulse to oversimplify as evil what his mama taught him and to sanctify as as holy what my mama taught me? or what my enlightenment taught me, or what my favorite media source taught me, left or right, you can choose. I want to give you an example of four words, and I could probably give you more, but of four words, one of them's hyphenated, that are no longer useful in discussions because they have become such oversimplified and overused ways of demonizing someone else that they no longer mean anything at all except to the people who are hurling them at others. Here they are, four words. Racist. America hater. Homophobe. Socialist. Now, we could probably throw Nazi in there and fascist. We could probably go on, but but let's just go with those. If you are using any of these words in your everyday conversation or on social media, and I have noted some have, you are not connecting with anyone at all except the people who already agree with you. As soon as you throw those words in there, you've completely lost the people who actually need to hear your opinion. You're in an echo chamber thinking that you're speaking to the world. Now, let me just take two of these as an example here. There are true racists. There really are. And I suppose there's true America haters and there are true homophobes and there are true socialists. But specifically, Let's talk about the racist first. Specifically to the racist charge, to characterize every form of cultural preference as racism is to deny the definition of of culture at all. Because what is a culture? A culture is a set of behaviors that one prefers. But to say that anyone who has a set of behaviors that they prefer that are different than mine is racist is to demand uniformity in your own way. And the problem is, there's a lot more room for reconciliation if we would just be a little more careful with the language. Because once you define someone as being a part of the hated enemy, then they don't have much incentive to try to get back from there. And to label anyone who mentions some of the obvious contemporary and historical weaknesses of America as being an America hater is to hopelessly cut ourselves off from ever confronting the real issues that we face right now. Neither of those terms are doing us any good at all. James chapter 3, verse 1 My brethren, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. I never liked that text. For we all stumble in many things. Do you agree with that? Is he making that up? For we all stumble in many things. If anyone does not stumble in word, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle the whole body. Well, I'll tell you, that's not me for sure. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and creature of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no man can tame the tongue. It is an unruly evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless our God and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the similitude of God. Out of the same mouth proceed blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be so. So I'll be honest, I would love to change the reality out there. But the problem is they're not really listening to me. And here's the other problem with that. You know what you call a person who thinks that everybody should do exactly what they think? There's a lot of names, but megalomaniac maybe? Do you honestly think the world would be better if everybody did things exactly the way you think it should be done? I would suggest that's a sign of insanity, because I don't get everything right, and I'm not smart enough to tell the whole world what to do. Reality is, I don't have much chance of convincing the president to stop his ridiculous tweeting or of convincing the left to quit their reactionary course of assured mutual destruction. They're just not listening to me. But maybe I can make a difference in this place, this Seventh-day Adventist house of God, filled with people, some of whom hated my reference to President Trump's tweeting, and some of whom hated any reference to the reactionaryism to that some who hated both that i would bring up anything like that at all maybe a few of you who aren't paying attention were not offended <laughs> but you're probably the only ones so my son gable uh for christmas a couple of years ago a god alicia and i of uh, uh, the 23andMe ancestry g- genealogy thing. I told you about that before. And so we did that. We did our little spit in the tube and send it away. And, and uh, came back and uh, yeah, there's really not much to me except Northwest Europe. That's sorry, that's all I got. Germany, maybe spilling over into Switzerland a little bit. Uh, England, Scotland a little bit of Ireland, that's it. Alicia's got a little French in there. Spice it up a little. But that's all we got to offer. So I was kind of curious, you know, I thought I wonder if I could trace some other stuff because that only gives you a general sense of where your ancestors came from. But uh, uh, so I went on uh, one of the ancestry sites, and, and I started looking around on that. And it's really fascinating because lots of people have done these studies and I got going and it actually gets absurd after a while because you realize how many great, 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 great grandparents you have. I mean, it's, it's two parents and then it's four and then it's eight and then it's 16 and then it's 32. And the, At what point does that become ridiculous? So pretty fast. But nonetheless, it's still kind of fascinating. So, so I got to working on that and I was going back and I found out something that on the one hand was very interesting. I have a number of relatives who, uh, who go all the way back to Jamestown, which was the first permanent English colony in the New World. I thought, wow, that's pretty cool. we have got all these relatives that go back to there. And then I thought about the implications of that. So I'm related to a line of people who in the 1600s, 1700s, and probably into the 1800s lived in southern Virginia. Now, very few people advertise whether your ancestor was a slaveholder or not, and so none of the ones I went through said that, obviously. But i got to say to you that the odds of me not having an ancestor who was a slaveholder in Southern Virginia sometime in the 1700s or the 1800s, pretty low, pretty low. And, and here's the thing they may have been really evil. I'd sure like to think that, wouldn't I? Or they may have been a lot like me, only living in a different age, mistakenly holding on to what their fathers taught them to be true. What did their fathers teach them to be true? Their fathers taught them the races weren't equal. Now, should they be commended for hanging on to what their fathers taught them? I don't think so. If I did have an ancestor that owned slaves, and the odds suggest I did, here's what I wanna say. I'm so sorry they did that. But beyond this, let me also add, as sorry as I am about that, I'm even more sorry that I might have done the same thing in ignorance had I lived in those days. You know, don't we like to lie to ourselves and say, had we lived back then, we would have never done those things. It's baloney. You're doing all the stuff now. Why would you have been different if you were born 200 years ago? And what are the sins we're engaging in right now that our children's children will disavow? You know, maybe there's something we do and we don't even know what it is and one day they're going to look back at it and they say, how could they be so evil? I don't know, you feel evil? I'm trying to do good. I'm just limited by what I know. So here's my problem. I like to be right. Just come to staff meeting once. You'll, you'll see. I almost always prefer my views to the views of others. But do I always recognize where my views come from? I like to think my views are right. But see what you think of this. We do not hold the views we hold because they are right, though normally they seem so to us. So it's not like we're given this choice. I'm going to take ten right ones and four wrong ones. I think that's a good balance. We don't do that, right? Somehow we have them. We don't just hold them because they're right, though normally they seem so to us. We hold the views we hold as a result of a lifetime of conditioning and context, Reflection and unreflection. Forbearance and reactionarianism. I'm making up words, but they work, I think. Tradition and iconoclasm. You know what that is? That's, tradition is when you do it because that's the way we've always done. And iconoclasm is when you make sure we never do it like we always did. Openness and closedness and what my mama told me versus what your mama told you we don't get our views out of a vacuum we get them out of the stream of our lives and then we all come into the same room and disagree on stuff we seek and i think this is true for all of us we seek mostly To think and to do good. Though we forget the words of Jesus when it comes to ourselves. Luke 18, verse 18. Now a certain ruler asked him, saying, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? So Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one. That is God. That's a hard word, isn't it? So what do we do? Is there none righteous? Is it all just a disaster? Well, maybe it's actually not all that tough. Do you remember this passage, Micah 6, verse 8? He has shown you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. It doesn't say to be right all the time, does it? Because we don't even know what that is all the time. But it does say we need to strive for justice, and we need to be merciful. That doesn't mean we love to get mercy. It means we love to show mercy. And we need to be humble about our opinion. We don't have to all agree with each other to do this, do we? Jesus, I think, tells the defining story for us in Luke chapter 10, verse 25. And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tested Jesus, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? What is your reading of it? So he answered and said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered rightly. Do this, and you will live. But he, wanting to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Is that really the question we should be asking? I mean, I think it's the question we want to ask, right? Because what if my neighbor is a racist? What if my neighbor is an America hater and won't even put up a flag on the 4th of July? God forbid, would kneel during the anthem. Or what if my neighbor is a homophobe? Or what if my neighbor is a socialist? See, that's the question we want to ask. Who is my neighbor? Because if this is the right question, I don't have to acknowledge anyone who I consider to be evil to be my neighbor. And I'm therefore free to do anything I want to them and say anything I want to them. But listen to what Jesus says at the end of the story. The story that takes place in the middle, the Good Samaritan story. You remember that? Three guys walk past a wounded man. The Samaritan stops and helps him. Let me tell you something about the Samaritan and the Jew he helped. They didn't agree on stuff. Even after the encounter, they didn't agree on stuff. Verse 36, So which of these three do you think was a neighbor to him who fell among the thieves? See, Jesus turns the question around. He wants to say, who is my neighbor? Jesus says, no, who was a neighbor? Verse 37, And he said, he who showed mercy on him. Then Jesus said to him, Go and do likewise. Can you show mercy to someone who disagrees with you? So we do this thing where we look around, right? Probably don't really want to do it right now. but let's do it anyway. Go ahead, look around. Hey, Jim. Take a look. Go ahead, look around you. Look at the people sitting here. We're not exactly uniform, are we? Look at those people who disagree with you about stuff. <laughs> These are the people I love. Ooh, it's awkward now. We here at the Forest Lake Church will never find unity in the issues of the day. Now, there are churches that, that ultimately do, and typically there's, there's some bold leader who stands up front and says, this is our position on this issue of the day, and everybody that disagrees leaves, and everybody that agrees comes, and that's the, just this happy uniformity. But we've made a different choice here, haven't we? We've made a choice here to be a diverse group filled with people who don't agree on stuff. The problem is this. Some of you will always be wrong. (laughs) And if I could just figure out which ones of you it is, we would root you out immediately. But I'm a little bit afraid it's me, so I don't want to do that. So what do we do? Well, I'm going to give the last points to James. James chapter 4, verse 11. Do not speak evil to one another, brethren. He who speaks evil of a brother and judges his brother speaks evil of the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is one lawgiver who is able to save and to destroy. Who are you to judge Another. And then James 3, verse 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. This wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly, sensual, demonic. For where envy and self-seeking exist confusion and every evil thing are there. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. Now the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace." That's a high standard, isn't it? We're never going to be united on the issues of our time. But we are united by something even more powerful than that. And that is our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and the mandate to love the Lord our God with all of our heart and to love our neighbors as ourselves. And everyone who of free will chooses to come into this space is my neighbor. Because that's what neighbor means. Neighbor doesn't mean person I agree with. Neighbor means person in close proximity to where I am. So how do we help build this unity together in the midst of the fact that we're never going to agree? Well, interestingly, Pastor Julie has an idea for us, and I think it's going to help. And this is something you're going to hear more about as we go forward. And in fact, she's sitting in the East Lobby right now, and she has a list with little pieces of paper on it. Let me show you one. I got one here in my wallet. She sat down and printed out the entire membership of this congregation and cut them into little pieces of paper with ten names apiece on them. And the challenge she has for us is that we would all come and take one of these pieces of paper and we would go home for the next few weeks and pray every day for the names on this list. And What will shock you is you'll probably get 10 names and you don't know one of them. And I'll guarantee you at least one of them disagrees with you. (laughs) But can we go home and pray for each other like that? I I love the enthusiasm of of a new pastor. She said, all I need is 400 volunteers. I said, yay. I don't think I've ever gotten 400 volunteers. (laughs) But sometimes what we don't know actually allows us to accomplish more. So let's not let her down, right? She'll be over here this week. She'll probably be over there next week. Or maybe we'll even be in the new space next week. But I want you to go over when we're done and get one of these pieces of paper and agree to pray. Because it's really hard to stay angry at somebody that you're beseeching the Lord for. These are my neighbors, these are the people I love. It, It all comes back to grace. The grace we've been shown Enables us to overcome all of the craziness that our mommy and daddy poured into us It goes for you guys get over it (laughs) Because God wants so much more for us So let's thank him that we have the privilege of being this crazy diverse body only amazing grace can make it happen let's pray father in heaven we pray for that grace in our lives and we pray that we will be a people that love one another because we are united by a bond stronger than our views of things in this day and that we will avoid useless conversation and hurtful words and we'll seek to build relationships and reconciliation. It really is the only way that we can ever overcome what we have believed to find something new. May our hearts be open. In Jesus' name, amen.